Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, this is Emma, Senior Account Manager at the Webby Awards. A lot of people have been asking if there are more opportunities to enter your work into the 24th Annual Webby Awards. Well, there are. The Webby Awards final entry deadline is December 20th. Enter now at webbyawards.com to make sure your work is viewed by the best minds across the internet and have a chance to win a Webby next May. We have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including brand new categories for voice, podcasts, social, student work, and more. Head on over to webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Online life is real life. Let's Let's change change the the world world together. Independent. Unbiased. Keeping it honest. Our future is better together. Hey there and welcome back. Over the last few years, data privacy has become a hot-button issue for anyone using the internet. Between Equifax's massive data breach to Cambridge Analytica's scandal with the 2016 Trump campaign, more and more people are rightly, and finally, concerned with how to use the internet safely. And our next guest is a key figure in protecting the digital civil liberties of millions of people around the world. Cindy Cohen is the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. Since 1994, Cindy has led the impact litigation to protect our rights as our use of technology grows. Her first case for the EFF focused on freeing up encryption from government control, which in hindsight turns out to have been a pretty big deal. A lot about digital culture has changed since those early days. The EFF used to be mostly concerned with protecting us from government surveillance, but today the bigger concern is the opportunity for surveillance afforded when private companies and governments cooperate. Pervasive data tracking, breaches, insidious advertising, using data to influence political campaigns, the list goes on. Cindy and I talked a lot about her nascent days at the EFF, including how her first case paved the way to safely using the internet, free speech, and the EFF's current work to decentralize social networks. We start off talking about how early on the government classified encryption as a weapon. EFF was founded in 1990, and about 1993 or 94, one of the founders, John Gilmore, and I were friends, and uh, he came to me and asked me if I wanted to handle a piece of impact litigation, if I wanted to try to free up encryption from government controls. And and honestly, I I put down the phone and I turned to my partner at the time and I said, so what's encryption? (laughs) Um, So I really didn't come from a technical background. Um, This was- You were a lawyer already. I was a lawyer, very junior lawyer. I just started practicing law. I'd worked at the United Nations in the Human Rights Center for a year and then come and started a practice. So um, I was still kind of what they call a baby lawyer at the time. But it seemed to me that, you know, I knew some of the early people were involved in the internet. Remember, this is before the World Wide Web. Yeah. Pre-Netscape Navigator. Pre-Mosaic, it sounds like. Exactly. I think ultimately, I think the first browser I did 
get was the Mosaic browser. But it was clear that people were going to need to have security and privacy online and that this government rule about encryption, which was treating, you know, encryption technology, it put it on the U.S. munitions list. So, you know, next to surface-to-air missiles and tanks is it was like a weapon. software with the capability as... of maintaining secrecy. Yeah. Famously, you know, breaking the Germans' codes helped win World War II. It's, it's not crazy that the Defense Department thought of it as a weapon, but it was clear that it was going to need to be available to all the rest of us if we were going to build the kind of internet that we wanted to have. And so I took on this case on behalf of a guy named Dan Bernstein, and we won. Tell me about the case, if it's fresh enough. I know it was Sure, sure. No, it was um, a challenge to the U.S. munitions list. Dan had written, he was a PhD student at UC Berkeley at the time, and he had written a little program called Snuffle that was strong encryption, but it wasn't particularly important to the face of the world. In fact, I told him, you know, that we might be in litigation for this for a very long time. So if you've got like the killer idea, like that might not be the one that we do the lawsuit about. So it was called Snuffle. It was very short. I think it was 12 to 15 lines, you know, for for technical people. It kind of was a, a play on turning a hashing algorithm into an encryptor. And we sued. First, we asked the government for permission to export it. At the time, and currently, the U.S., Defense Department, and they define publishing something to the internet as an export. So Dan wanted to participate in a news group. I mean, this is old time stuff, but yeah. I figure some our, of your audience, audience will, will know us, yes. this. Yeah. So there was an online news group called Psy.Crypt, and Dan wanted to publish his code on that news group, and he needed a government license in order to do that. And we argued in front of the court and all the way up to the Ninth Circuit that that violated the First Amendment, that code is speech and publishing code is a speech act. And if the government wants to try to regulate it, it has to meet the very, very high standards for regulating speech. And the export regulations nowhere near meet that standard. And so we won. We won in the lower court and then we won in the Ninth Circuit. And then as we were getting ready to go to the next level, the government backed down and, you know, largely deregulated strong encryption. There's still some little minimal regulations, but they don't get in anybody's way anymore. That's why you can have that little lock on your browser. Right. It's why you can use Signal. It's, it's case, why you actually. can use Tor. It's it's ended up being very foundational for yeah. a lot of the stuff we need today to keep us secure, right? Cybersecurity really depends on strong encryption. And the, you know, whether you're looking at the, you know, data breaches, whether it's Equifax or any of the other ones, or just simple conversations or you know, doing the kind of political activity, for instance, that we're seeing in Hong Kong now with the democracy activists, all of that depends on the availability of strong encryption. So it ended up being a very foundational case, and I'm very proud to have done it, but I'd be lying if I told you I knew that uh, in the 90s. Um, I just thought this would be a cool thing to do and would kind of, you know, be a way that I could help try to build this digital world in a better way. But also as an early argument around the concept of code of speech, which also became an important you know, I don't know if it established the sort of precedent that this case did, or, you know, as a concept is certainly like super foundational now. And Yep. And the Bernstein case and a couple other cases arising out of encryption technology are why we have the findings that code is speech that we use in lots of other situations now. And yeah, that was one of the pieces that we had to get across to the court in order to get from here to there. So it, again, it ended up being pretty important in a bunch of different directions. And honestly, I kind of got lucky that I think at the time, the folks who were, were running the Electronic Frontier Foundation and John in particular, like they didn't, there weren't a lot of lawyers who knew about tech already. And so they kind of decided that they had to grow them. Mm. And I was one of the ones that, that you know, early on was able to, uh, to grow in that direction. 
did you just sort of like develop like I really love this field in like because of the case because you as you mentioned there you were doing human rights mm -hmm. law which I would guess most people who do that are probably passionate. I mean, it must be motivated by passion, I would imagine, for most people. You must have had some some real... Yeah, and I, I really, my interest in the internet and in this stuff was because I could see the benefits for human rights. I could mm. see the way that this was going to give a voice to people all over the world, the way that this was going to empower people to stand up for their rights. And a, a lot of the things that we see now that we're still struggling for, I wouldn't say we've you know won by any measure, but the promise of the of the network to be able to really give people a voice and give them a way to protect themselves and, and protect human rights was what got me in it in the first place. And honestly, it was also really fun. You know, lawyers often end up fighting over what happened in the past and looking backwards a lot, tying things to precedent. You're kind of always looking backwards. And this work has always made me have to think about the future hmm. more and look forward. And that's really feels very special. And, and I, I feel really lucky to have you know been able to build a career in this. So tell me a bit about a little bit about the EFF over time. Are there, you know, I, I have read the sort of popular short phrase that it's the EFF is like the ACLU for the internet. I've heard that before. Yep. I think most people that certainly hopefully listening to our podcast probably know about the EFF, but Give me a sense of sort of what the EFF was charged with and what things it was fighting for in, say, those early days of maybe like 1995, 2000-ish, compared to what the challenges are now. And are there are there sort of big points in the technology timeframe that have reshaped or changed? You know, is it the mobile phone? Are there really big things that have really shifted what you guys are doing? Yeah, there's tons of them. I, I would say in the in the early 90s and the late 90s, it was really about, you know, a lot of core free speech issues, the recognition that the internet was a place of free speech, which came in a case called ACLU versus Reno that we, we were involved in. The ACLU handled it. My friends at the ACLU always get slightly unhappy about EFF being called the ACLU of the internet since the ACLU does a lot of yeah, work do. on the internet yeah. and we love them. On the one hand, it's easy to help people understand, and on the other hand, I, I don't like to, you know, push on that too much. Yeah. But our job is to try to make sure that when you go online, your rights go with you. And the things that were front and center in the 90s were just core, this is a place of free speech, core, this is a place where, you know, we are empowered individually to be able to build what we want and build the kind of place that we want. And I would say that primarily in the 90s, the government was the bigger concern. You know, if you if you read John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace or any of those things, you can see that the things that people were really focused on right then were kind of core, what I think of as old school civil liberties around free speech and then, you know, encryption technology, trying to protect innovation. I would say in the 90s, we spent a lot of time trying to explain technology to governments, to law enforcement, to mm. judges. I often felt like when we, we showed up in a case, you know, our fundamental goal was to try to explain what was going on in this weird new place and get to a level of understanding with the people who were the deciders, whether they were in Congress or the courts or elsewhere. I think that started to shift in, you know, in 2000s. The other thing that happened in the late 90s was the passage of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And issues around copyright and the role that copyright was going to play online became really front and center for the organization. Again, Barlow wrote the essay, you know, Wine Without Bottles and, and Wired. And that was a, a pretty good framing thing for a lot of people in thinking about how there were going to be issues when, you know, copyright is based on the ability to control copies. And 
You know what computers do? Yeah, copy things really, copy really well. Copy things yeah. all the time. Yeah. And so there was just this fundamental clash that was going to have to happen, lest copyright be the, the law that rules the internet, right? I mean, if, if copyright really lets you control copies, then nothing that happens online is outside of the scope of copyright law. And so we spent a lot of time in the 2000s really trying to battle to get that balance right. And again, those fights aren't necessarily over, but you know, there was first there was Napster, then we took a case called Grokster to the U.S. Supreme Court. And For our then, listeners who don't remember, uh, Napster was sort of the original file sharing software that was used uh, for peer-to-peer. -peer. It was really a pioneer in the just general idea of peer-to-peer -peer sharing, yeah. if not just music. And then Grokster was once Napster got went away, let's say. Grokster was the, <laughs> got, the got sort blown of like, into a smoking hole. Yeah, yeah. Grokster was like the next iteration of you right. know, since yeah. And even more peer to peer, so didn't have centralized searching. Right. And so the argument that we were trying to, to point out is that like theories of secondary copyright liability, the idea that somebody who builds a technology should be held responsible for what people do with it in the context of copyright law needed to be cabined or else it would control everything. And Technologies like BitTorrent, which were peer-to-peer -peer sharing technologies that were developed pretty fundamentally for to allow people to share code, right? Mm -hmm. uh, BitTorrent was created to allow people to share big open source code and other projects along the way. They would drown. We wouldn't. We would lose this opportunity to have peer-to-peer -peer file sharing technology if copyright law was uh, and secondary copyright law specifically was allowed to basically control what you could build. And so, again, I wouldn't say we're done with those battles, but we've kind of reached an equilibrium where people can still build stuff and can share files. Yet, you know, I wouldn't say we reached completely the world that I would want to reach on that. There, there's definitely still copyright fights and I think copyright overreach going on. But we beat back things like Sopa Pippa, which was an attempt to, to get copyright law to control, like how you search and find things online and other sorts of things. But th those fights go on, but they aren't central like they were. And then I would say kind of in the... Do you, do you think some of that is that the marketplace has sort of like solved or answered some of the biggest fears of the people who were like big proponents of the... Like, so I'm just thinking around like the file sharing thing, for instance. You know, a lot of that was going on in a world where you couldn't actually buy a song from anybody. And so like all these rights holders to publishing rights, recording rights to music were freaking out because there's lots and lots of people accessing all the stuff that they own rights to and they're not getting anything. But it's not as if consumers had like this place to go to give them a dollar for their song. And then as those things came to be and they started having their own market and their own business and doing well, they became a little less concerned about, you know, sort of some of these some of these things. I think that's probably true. I'm not sure they became a little less concerned, but they they got a little less traction with everybody else right. on these arguments. I mean, you know, they had gotten a little used to the fact that they would sell us something on an album and then they'd sell it to us on a tape and right. then they'd sell it to us on a CD. And they kind of liked that model. And, and you know, where, where we bought the same music over and over again in different formats as they shifted things. And peer-to-peer -peer file sharing kind of ended that. And I think that there was a lot of, you know, gnashing of teeth and wailing about, well, how am I going to buy my second island? So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll gab at some of the, the rock stars who took on that position. But you're right. One of the things that we kept pointing out is if you give people a better, another option, they will go for it. And so, you know, really when iTunes came along as the first one of those where it really did start to offer people a way to get access to music in digital form and share it, but at a price point that wasn't, you know, forcing you to buy an album yeah. every time you wanted to buy a song. 
the market moved right. and people moved. And, you know, I wouldn't say things are perfect now. I think that there's, but we do live in a world where you could pretty much get any media you want off of a peer-to-peer file sharing network. And the vast majority of people don't, right? right? Because they've got better options. And, you know, those of us, you know, there, there's a time in your life when you got more time than money. And there's a time in your life when you have, perhaps if you're lucky, a little more money than time. And the people with more money than time, moved out of the business of file sharing as a way to get their media. And so I think it, it really did kind of lower the fire down on the flames. Again, we still have to face kind of copyright-based arguments to try to do stuff. So I don't want to say that that's over. I mm. still have a team of you know four lawyers and a couple activists who are full-time working on issues around intellectual property in probably the middle of the 2000s, there were some shifts where we began to, t- to talk about patents yeah. and patent busting and trolls. And this was an issue that a lot of people in tech wanted EFF to take on for a while, but it took some shifts in the way that the, the law was working before we saw a way that a tiny little nonprofit could actually help in those wars, because those are kind of multi-million dollar fights. But we now spend a lot of time busting stupid patents. In fact, you know, there was mm. a patent on podcasting that was asserted by a company called Personal Audio, and EFF busted that patent. And so that's why you don't receive shakedown letters from Personal Audio, but lots of people did. You know, we worked with, you know, Mark Barron and and Adam Carolla and a bunch of the kind of high-profile podcasters on that. We've done a lot uh, to try to, again, try to bring some balance into that system a little bit. There's, again, there's still more to do, but but we, we pretty regularly are able to take out some bad patents and we draw a lot of attention to the problem of patent trolls still. And for and I think the, the podcasting one's a good example. For people who aren't super familiar with patent busting, some of it is just that these companies have been successful in getting patents for things that normal people would think are insane, like clicking on something, linking to something, just the sort of everyday way the internet works. And for whatever reason, I'm not going to speculate why these things are successful, but they have been able to get these patents. And then they, as you say, they send out letters to people who are linking to a different website using linking technology, for lack of a better example, and trying to get money from them. The patent office is overwhelmed. Yeah. And so there's some good people there, but they're overwhelmed. But for the longest time, they were, you know, granting patents for doing something that one could do in the real world with a computer, right. as if with right. a computer made it a whole new thing. And, you know, I think that we still see them. We still, we feature a stupid patent of the month every month, and it's still happening. The patent office is still overwhelmed and granting bad patents, and there's still a lot of work to be done there. But at least there are some tools now to try to fight back without having your own, you know trust fund of a million dollars to to do right. one of those cases. So we we still do a, a lot of work around that and around copyright bullies and, and trademark bullies sometimes too. So there's still a lot of intellectual property stuff going on in, um, in the work that we do. There's also a lot of patents on software that I think are troubling and problematic. So there's still a lot of work going on in that area. But then, you know, we began to see the rise of the big tech giants and, you know, EFF became increasingly concerned about the what we call the surveillance business model, right? The kind of um, pervasive tracking of you and everywhere you go on the on the web, which is the fundamentals for, you know, the business model for the big tech giants. 
It's also, by the way, a mighty convenient thing for the U.S. government and surveillance. So back to kind of the first issues that we dealt with, you know, the government piggybacks off of all of the tracking that the companies are doing in a very real way. And so there isn't really a clear separation. I I get this question a lot, you know, you're more concerned about the government or you're more concerned about the companies. And the answer is like, there isn't a distinction between the two of these. Like if the companies are gathering information about you, it's available to the government. I guess the other thing that I kind of skipped over in the middle of this is, of course, 9-11 and the Patriot Act and a lot of the scaling back of people's rights and protections around surveillance that happened after that, which, you know, was a huge shift for us. And again, we kind of went from a world where we were trying to explain some of this technology to people to one where we were really trying to fight for people's rights inside the technology, in the technological infrastructure, you know, and, 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 you know, for the longest time I've been involved in trying to stop the NSA from having mass surveillance on the backbone of the internet. That work is ongoing. So tell me a bit about this overlapping of government and private company. It is a newish type thing in that people, I think when they think of, or at least in the past, they thought of surveillance, you know, they think of government spies and, you know, people maybe setting up microphone, you know, government Mm -hmm. agencies deploying their own technology to listen over here, whatever Mm -hmm. they're doing. And then they think of private industry acting completely separate. But as you're, you're sort of mentioning there, you know, now private companies are providing services to people and part of those services require, you know, in order to actually work, require collection of lots and lots of different types of data we can talk about in a second. And then the government now in some places has access to that, mm-hmm. right? And then there's even the the finer, the further part here, which is consume, you know, consumers are using lots of smaller pieces of software in lots of new ways, which, you know, isn't necessarily the tech giants, mm-hmm. but maybe there's, maybe they have access to that as well. Both of these things are true, right? Everything from you know, the internet backbone surveillance infrastructure that the NSA has set up uh, happens with the cooperation of AT&T and Verizon and the people who run the internet backbone networks, originally voluntarily, but now via statute, will cooperate with the NSA to allow access to their networks. There's another program, that program's called Upstream. There's another program called PRISM, which is where, you know, the government will go to, say, Google and say, you need to search your entire database for this information and give us all the information that turns from that. You know, if you're the government and you want access to people, it's cheaper and easier to go to the service providers and get that information than it is to have to go through the people. And you can do it secretly and the people will never right. know. Do they need a warrant in order to do that? And what, and what? And the other part of that question is what type of information do they have access to? So in the NSA context, they, yeah. they don't need a warrant. And that's the centerpiece of, of our fight with the NSA is that we think they should need a warrant. A warrant is about individualized, you know, probable cause. Like they actually think you did something wrong. They've got reason enough to convince a judge to give an individual warrant to get information about you from service providers. That's the standard of the Fourth Amendment and the warrant. The NSA's mass spying doesn't require a warrant. There's a court involved, but the court just kind of signs off on the program in general, and there's nothing like this kind of individualized suspicion. And so that's the centerpiece of our fight around that. For the various different technologies, you know, the fights that we've been in all the way up to the Supreme Court are about trying to get the warrant standard to apply. So if the cops want to also search your phone, 
something called search incident to arrest, they have to go get a warrant. The, the side effect of getting arrested isn't that they get access to your entire life on your phone. They need to have a warrant. Well, the cops didn't think that was the rule for the longest time. We had to go to the Supreme Court to get it cleared off. If the cops want to put a GPS device on your car and track you around, um, which gives them extremely intimate information yeah. about your lives, they didn't used to need a warrant. And again, we went to the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, a bunch of us, we, EFF, was sure. part of a big coalition. Uh, in a case called Jones a few years ago, and we won, the cops need a warrant. So this this fight is ongoing, and it, it, it happens, has to kind of, so far anyway, is having to happen with each particular technology. So I think license plate readers will come. So it's almost like the, probably we would hope that everything had to require a warrant, and if something new came, then it would naturally have to unless it was excluded. And in fact, it's the other way around, which is it's treated as like, well, it's not written as part of what is required by a warrant, we can search it without a warrant until somebody tells us we have to. I, I think that's how things are happening. Right. Law enforcement's buying these crazy new spy technologies, and we don't even find out about them. And then we find out about them, and then we start the fight right. about whether a warrant happens. And it's backwards, right? I yeah. mean, we've got a group called the Electronic Frontiers Alliance, which is a, a kind of a, a coordinating part of EFF that works with local groups all across the country who are trying to fight for civil liberties in their local area. And one of the things that the EFA groups have started doing is trying to get ordinances passed in various localities requiring that the cops have to come before the city council and and the public has to have knowledge before they deploy a new surveillance technology. So local people can flip the right. script around, but they got to get, we got to pass laws to do that because that's not the default. So we, we have a law like that that was first, the first one I think was passed in Santa Clara County. In California, there's one in Berkeley. I think there's something like this in Massachusetts. But there are groups that are trying to begin to do this. But again, this is the thing where like the technology is providing challenges that kind of didn't exist before. And so you know, law enforcement is going to always pushes their advantage as far as they can. And so if we want that not to be the default, that we have to try to, to flip the switch. And these C-COPs is the name of the, the, the one. But they're basically community-led ordinances that require community notice and comment and an actual decision by elected leaders before they can deploy new surveillance technology in a community are one of the ways that people can begin to flip this the switch. Tell me a bit about not necessarily law enforcement surveilling, but other companies or other private or organizations or whatever it might be wanting to access some of the information that is collected by our phones or other devices that are in our homes to do things that aren't necessarily nefarious, but maybe are things that general people wouldn't want to have happen. So for instance, I was just looking at my phone. In the last like week or two, I downloaded something called Sleep Score, which is an app to help you like measure your sleeping patterns and improve your sleeping patterns. I downloaded this app for an arena where you can order uh, you go to a basketball game when you're there, you can order food from it and they bring it to you. I downloaded uh, something called Elevate, which is like a brain game thing. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking like, you know, we all know that there's a lot of personal data collected through our phones, but it gets really, really, really personal. So the sleep ones like has my heart rate and yeah. like my breathing rate and like when I'm going to sleep and how much I'm sleeping. The brain game one in theory could track whether my cognition is getting better or worse, which lots of insurance companies and health mm -hmm. providers, all sorts of companies 
can anybody access that information? Or And then the second question, should consumers have some sort of expectation when they download these things about what is going to be shared? And I think the expectation now is that it should be that everything's going to be shared. Well, I mean, I think that that's the resignation that right. people have as opposed to, you know, something they're really excited about. We spend a lot of time on this. I mean, we, you know, I work more on the civil liberties side and because that's the, the kind of work I do, but we spend a huge amount of time on the balance between, you know, your privacy and the private companies as well. And, you know, we helped pass, California has a, a California Consumer Privacy Act that got passed last year that's the one of the strongest in the world that we, we had a piece of. And um, trying to, you know, get privacy standards for your data in the United States has been a long time um, effort of, of EFF, you know, vis-a-vis private companies as well as the government. We care about them both. As I said, they're intertwined. So, yeah, these are all really good questions. And the fact that you're asking them is awesome, right? Because five years ago, nobody was asking these questions. So I think we've all awakened a bit to how these business models really work. And people want more control over what happens to their data. And they want clear understanding of what's going to happen to their data. So, you know, we, we're we working to try to get some, you know, kind of better protections passed for people. I'm playing around with different ideas. Um, there's an idea that I really like called data fiduciaries that says that if you're going to give your data to somebody, they have a responsibility to treat it in your interest mm-hmm. and not having uh, another interest that, that leads it. Um, um, that's an idea that I think has a very interesting possibilities for flipping things around. But we have been in, you know, efforts in, and these are largely legislative, so they're largely in state laws or federal laws to try to get privacy protections up higher than they are right now. Um, But we also build technologies at EFF, and we have a privacy badger, which is a plugin for Chrome and Firefox that blocks third-party cookies. And we're in this constant cat and mouse game with Google especially to try to give you a measure of protection against the cookie tracking and third-party tracking. And um, we do a lot of work to try to to both on the, you know, kind of advocacy side and on the technology side, try to give you better protections against some of this kind of tracking. You know, and there's not only the tracking that you know about, like, obviously, this thing is tracking my sleep because that's what I want it to do. But is it tracking your location? Oh, yeah. Is it tracking, you know, all sorts of other things? And, and you know, the permission system, you know, what what is an app see? What is it doing? And what is it doing with that data has been really opaque to people for a long time. Kind of trying to get more attention to that has been something that we've long tried to do. Apple does a little better job than the Android world right. does about those kinds of controls and, and, and limiting and making sure you know and giving you, you know, kind of more granular control over what happens with that data. But we're a long way to go. We have a long way to go. I mean, just, and I'm not going to pick on sleep score because it seems like (laughs) you're a great app. So, but just in general, in terms of like uh, any any app like that, is there anything to stop a company who's, you know, whatever you use, say you have a, there's apps where you can use a heart rate monitor, right? And it'll use Bluetooth and it'll tell you what your heart rate is. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to stop a, a company or an app like that from collecting all your your heart rate data and selling it to insurance company or like a life insurance company or health insurance that's, that's interested in insuring you that they could like, you know, that they can, they want to go see what your other, what other data that is out there about your health. There's some health rules about what insurance companies can get access to and what they can use to make those decisions. So there are a few peripheral rules, but if you're tracking it yourself and then making it available to other people, it's kind of outside of a lot of the medical privacy laws that are mm. pretty strong, right? right. Uh, there's a law called HIPAA that's a federal law 
but it only applies to healthcare providers. And I suspect your sleep people, they're, they're outside of right. that scope and you're asking them to do it. Again, there are some protections, but most of them turn on what did they tell you they were going to do and did right. they lie about it? Right. So it turns on those terms of service, right? That I'm sure you read very carefully. I mean, I, in this case I did, yeah. but like I also felt like I have no, I mean, I think I know what it says. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer and I don't feel particularly astute at reading things. These yeah. things are very complicated. Yeah, and 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 you know there've been some studies on this, and the you know like the the amount of your life that you would lose if you read every single term of services years, right? Like nobody can. One of the things that again we've been trying to push for is to set a floor for how this data has to work. What does notice look like to you? What does your consent have to look like? You know, I I don't want us to get to the place where the government is dictating every single bit of these kinds right. of things. You want yeah. people to be able to innovate, and and I want to empower you to make those decisions. You might make different decisions than I do. But we need to set a basic floor about what's going on with these apps. Anything that is an advertising-based business model is going to be making its money, you know, well, targeted advertising-based business model. There's contextual ads, which I don't have a problem with. But targeted advertising is always going to be based on somebody watching you and giving ads based on all of your behavior. And if that's their business model... Like, you need to know that because that's what they're doing. Whereas, you know, if there's an app that, say, you know, you pay for and their business model is the subscription or what sure. you pay for them, you still need to read the terms of service because there's plenty of people who will charge you for something and sell your data, course, right? Yeah. It's not one or the other. But, you know, you, you really do have to learn about these things. And I think that the companies need to do a better job of telling you. And I'd love to continue to see things, you know, Consumer Report, the Consumers Union is starting to try to do consumer-based reviews that will pay attention to things like privacy and stuff like that. But it's still pretty rudimentary. We're still very far behind. And it's a big, big world out there. And there's to just try so to keep many. I mean, there's, yep. there's, I mean, you couldn't possibly yep. try and track every single piece of software and keep it up. I mean, you could try, I guess, but. Well, you know, again, I think, I think Apple tries to do a little bit of that with the App Store. Again, you know, lots of things get through it, though. I mean, it's pretty hard. I, I think in the Android store, they try to do a little of that, too, but I think that it's far harder. And, and they're actually, frankly— They're really frankly, just, like, managing, like, risk at that point. Yeah, and, they're, anything, and right? exactly. And they're far less interested in it because that's their business model, too. Apple has things that I strongly disagree with, but fundamentally, their job is to sell you a, a shiny little device. And so they don't so reliant on an advertising business model. And so they make a set of decisions around your privacy— and respecting you that are a little different than somebody who's got an advertising business model. But right now, I think this is why we need to set a solid floor is I think most people, even people who want to care about this stuff, are kind of overwhelmed and feel a little like they're they're powerless in this. In Europe, they have the GDPR, the privacy uh, regulations uh, that are trying to do that. There are some parts of the GDPR I don't really agree with, and there's some ways in which I think it's still early days to see how it shakes out. It, it does appear that a, a lot of what the GDPR is doing is having everybody just click I agree, I agree over yeah, and over yeah, again. Yeah. Um, but I think we'll begin to see, you know, that's that to me that's kind of like, you know, version one of what privacy protection might look like. I think California law might be version 1.5. Like anything, we got to keep iterating towards something that works for people. We have a proposed bill that was called the Privacy for All Bill in the state of California that was kind of our best guess. We, we worked with the ACLU on this about how one might really truly begin to protect privacy. There are other ideas out there. Again, the data fiduciary idea is kind of flipping it around such that it's not even so much about privacy and trying to define privacy, but trying to make sure that the people who hold your data are working in your interest 
and holding them liable if they don't. I mean, right. there's a whole other side of this that I think is responsible for how a lot of these apps work, which is there's really very little downside to them in treating you poorly. It's really hard to, you know, you don't have a lot of rights against them. The terms of service usually mean that you've given them away. And it's pretty hard to mount something that will help protect you, especially if what's been violated is your privacy. Supreme Court has been pretty slow to recognize a privacy harm as the kind of harm that one might have, say, if, you know, somebody tapped your car and put a a dent in your fender. Like, you've got much stronger rights to try Mm. to deal with a fender dender than you do with somebody who just takes your privacy and runs with it or tries or or does identity theft and, and is you. Uh, you know, for purpose, digital purposes online. And so we got to fix that. Like that, that's that's not going to be sustainable. And do you think that's a federal thing or is that at this? I mean, because you mentioned the California law. Is it, is it, is it just that it's more achievable at a state level to get a lot of this stuff passed and build like a consensus? And once you get enough big states who have passed something, then everybody else has to follow that rule anyway. So then why not? Has it federally? Is yeah. That kind of I mean, I think ideally if I were sitting with a whiteboard and I said, you know, what's what would be the best way for us to do this? It would be a strong federal privacy thing. There's a there's a lot of benefit that can come from one rule. You don't want to put a new company into the business of trying to figure out what all 50 states are doing and they're all different. But because the feds are really doing nothing right yeah. now on privacy, then the states are going to step in and they're going to be the laboratories where we figure this out. There's something not bad about that in the short term. I think in the long run, we kind of want it to sh- settle out. For people, but in the short term, having different states try different things, you know, the, the the old thing you learn in law school is the states are the laboratories of democracy, right? Mm. To have different places try out different models and we see which ones are working better isn't, isn't such a bad thing in the short term. I think in the long term, again, that's not the ideal. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. I think in August you published this article. It's in Wired as an op-ed. It's called "When Limiting Free Speech to Curb Violence, We Should Be Careful." <laughs> it's a very nuanced article, which I think you can get people, readers, probably or listeners, probably get from the title. I'm going to summarize it, but please do a better job. But essentially, you're really it's really in response and talking about this concept of deplatforming people who were engaged in speech in places on the internet, which eventually led to, maybe led to is a strong word, but which eventually led to violence. And people essentially really want to go after these platforms where people are engaged in hate speech and then eventually go on to do terrible things because mm-hmm. it's a natural reaction to want to stop the, these things. And this mm-hmm. is a place where we can like go and do something about it. Mm-hmm. But your piece is really about sort of caution as to like whether or not that's actually 
a real solution that will do any make a difference. I, I completely understand the impulse. You know, there are people out there doing horrible things. And I think there's a general frustration as our society, as, as Americans, that it seems like we can't do anything about this. You know, if the place we want to intervene is to make sure that these people don't have weapons, there's, it feels like there's a, a block there, right? If we want to have a really strong mental health system where people get intervened with if they seem like they're acting bad and there's actually a system where people can get help and and have mental health benefits that feels like it's not possible right now our our safety net is full of holes for people suffering from a mental illness so i think that there is naturally a place to try to want to turn to you know well well maybe if we could just shut down these platforms you know maybe that would help and my trouble with that is that i have been involved in you know, trying to help people have a voice online for, you know, nearly 30 years now, right? And it is almost always the case that the people who suffer when you pass these kinds of laws are marginalized people, not the people you think you're going to you're you're going to reach. So trying to figure out how to chase bad speech off of the internet without hurting good speech, it's just not going to do the things that people think they're going to do. And I, you know, I have spent a lot of time trying to help people who have been deplatformed get back online. And I will tell you the vast majority of them were people who were not powerful people trying to speak to powerful people. Right. Invariably, it just gets used as a a tool of of the oppressors to further oppress as opposed to as a way of actually stopping uh, people who are who are eventually going to do bad things. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a fundamental question about whether speech leads people to do bad things. You know, after uh, you know the Columbine shootings in the in you know um, you know way back when you know there was a, a broad consensus that violent video games made people be violent, and then social scientists actually started looking at it, and the answer is no. Right. Right. There's no correlation, and so. You know, there's a correlation and causation aren't the same thing. Um, Lots of people play video games and the vast majority of them don't go out and shoot somebody. And there isn't a link uh, between the two of those things. I think the same is true with online platforms. There's a lot of people who participate in those platforms. The ones who pick up guns, it's not going to work. I think it's going to backfire. And I think that the causation link isn't there yet. In fact, we we worked with Homeland Security Committee of the House of Representatives and, and got them they're just passed a bill to try to create a like a blue ribbon commission to study this and to try to get us some real answers about the link between online speech and offline violence and try to de- you know, are we are we in a situation like the violent video games where this isn't really the right thing or are we in a situation in which there's something to look at here maybe maybe in the way that the algorithms work or maybe in the way that other things work. You know, I've talked to a lot of social scientists. We don't know the answer to this. And so before we start making rules, maybe we ought to do a little science, right, get a little evidence. So, you know, my, the the purpose of my piece was to try to to signal, you know, to bring some of what I know from the 25 years I've spent trying to help people get online about how power works. Because if you you don't understand how power works and you're going to pass a law that feels really good and you're going to further oppress the people who are already oppressed. We saw this idea of countering violent extremism that that came up, you know, after 9/11, which, you know, essentially was an effort to try to make sure Muslims couldn't talk online and couldn't share their experiences. If it wasn't a very good idea when it was Muslims who were being silenced, 
Um, I don't think it's a very good idea when it's white supremacists either. Like the people who end up being crushed on these things are not the people that you would expect. So, you know, that was my concern. Uh, and, you know, again, I, I completely understand. I mean, I don't have any sympathy for the, the people who are online fomenting hate. Um, I just don't think that trying to chase them off the internet is going to work. And so what do you think about the responsibility that platforms have? Because, I mean, that's a, that's a second part of this whole thing, right, which is – and I, I know all of these platforms devote a lot of resources to trying to moderate these things, find them, eliminate them. Some of them are more successful than others. Some of them probably care about it more than others. You know, they, some of them have more money to spend or more time or whatever it might be. They're all doing various different jobs at it. Some of them are known for doing a better job. But there's this big question, which in, at the end of the day, it really ties back into sort of some of the things you were talking about earlier. It's just a different topic. But just same with the copyright thing. It's like who's responsible yep. for what happens in these places? You yep. know, it's like there's bad things that happen on streets all over the place and we don't like get rid of the streets necessarily. That's right. And so it really does turn on, you know, when are we going to hold – create secondary responsibility when – because the primary responsibility is hard. And again, I, I, I think that it's pretty clear right now that Facebook is really lousy at doing this, even though they've thrown probably more resources on it than everyone. And it's really hard to do. I, I don't want to say that – I don't think just, you know, pounding the table and saying nerd harder, right. uh, Mark Zuckerberg is going to make Facebook magically able to tell who the good guys are and who the bad guys are in any of these situations. They're not going to be. And so what they do is they just take everything down. Right. They take down anything they get a complaint about. They have these complicated rules about what is and what isn't, and they can't even follow them. And so, you know, I don't think trying to make Mark Zuckerberg the god of who gets to speech on, speak online and then pound the table and try to make him a better god right. is the right way to go about it. I think the way to go is to have... But we're happy to be mad at him when, like, these things happen and yeah. bad things happen because of it, right? I mean, well, I think so. And, you know, fine. Like, I don't cry for Mark. He's, he's probably doing all right. Sure. But, but I do think that if we want to protect the ability for marginalized people to speak online, we have to not just assume that any magical central being is going to be able to tell who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. And this problem gets much worse when you go internationally, right, where you're in multiple languages, you've got a lot of slang going on. Trying to be right about this is really, really hard. And what we see is these big companies often getting played, mm. right? I mean, once... Twitter started getting really in the business of taking down speech that people complained about. You'd see organized gangs of people complaining about, you know, black Twitter um, right. and, and things like that. And again, so if you don't know how power works, if you try to build these systems, they're going to get played by the powerful against the less yeah. powerful every single time. So I think that, that part of the problem with this is that we only have a couple places where people can speak online and that it, it's much easier to allow communities to police themselves if they're smaller. Mm. You know, it's, it's mm. one of the reasons why we're beginning to talk a lot more about competition and re-decentralizing the web and moving away from, you know, kind of an internet that's really just five big companies. Because I think that, that some of these problems about managing communities get a lot easier if they're smaller. And the ones that have been successful at building more happy places and controlling the speech on it have been have been the smaller ones. I think Reddit's actually done a pretty good job of going from a cesspool to something that's that's much more responsible. 
but Reddit's not gigantic. Right. And they really do try to empower communities to make their own decisions about these things. And then people can leave if they don't like the rules in the community. So, I mean, you know, I'm not. But people like the allure of going somewhere where everybody is also, right? Which yeah, is but some of the, the answer to that is protocols then, right? right? Like, you know, I, I don't have to be, I don't have to have the same ISP as you for us to be able to email each other, right? You know, I, I joke that, uh, you know, I look forward to the day that Facebook is just another node on the right. Mastodon Fediverse, right? Like right. protocols and, and ways of talking to each other can allow us to speak without all having to have one big company in charge of it. And frankly, but, that's how the phone system yeah. works, right? But e- it's interesting, though. Email is really the only thing like, I mean, I think, right? Email is really the only thing like that on the internet where still there now where there's like an overall set of rules by which people, in terms of social stuff, there's lots of other, you yeah, know. I was going to say the web. Yeah, yeah, but I'm talking in terms, of, uh, in terms of like a, a social discussion tool, which is, Decentralized point, like everybody can have different types of email software. Mm-hmm. There are companies in the middle of it who have some, con- you know, Google, Gmail is probably very popular and yeah. more popular than others, but um, you could still have your own, you know, you could literally still host your own email on your computer in your living room if you wanted, yep. if you wanted to spend the time and you could send a message to somebody who's doing something different. Right. There's not a lot of that left. No, no, it's it's been decimated, but I think that that points an interesting way forward, right? Mm-hmm. To try to re-decentralize the web. The the technology doesn't care. You know, there are problems we have to deal with, right? We have to figure out part of why Gmail became so centralized is that Google offered it for free. There was a huge amount of storage and they did a really good job on spam, Same, right? Yeah. But none of those are things that we couldn't replicate in a decentralized situation if if we wanted to. But I, I do think we need to start thinking about that because otherwise one company that controls how everybody can speak and what information they receive both is really, really dangerous for democracy, for yeah. self-governance. So beginning to think about it. And the other thing about it is like, why should they get all the money? I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm not a business person, but it strikes me that there ought to be a lot of market opportunities there to take off pieces of this and make it work if we could set the standard of, you know, how social networks communicate with each other and make that standard stick and then let people build on it. And they can build all sorts of different options for us. But I think that that conversation needs to really start happening now. You know, we used to have my my colleague, Cory Doctorow, writes a lot these days about um, adversarial interoperability, right? This idea that if somebody made a tool and you wanted to interoperate with it, you you used to have, and we have lots of good stories in the history of the of the internet of people doing that and building something better or something that could compete or could add value to something that already existed. And there's a series of reasons, some of them having to do with big business and investment, but some of them having to do with law, where that's not what people are building anymore. People are building roach motels, right? Where you check in and you never check out. But those are policy decisions. They're policy and legal decisions um, and business decisions, none of which, you know, Moses walked down on the mountain with them carved into stone. We can decide as a society, we want to go in a different direction. And I look at things like DuckDuckGo, for instance, as a as an example of something that is you know, carving out. It's a very different world. This is in search, but carving out a very different business model than the one that people have gotten used to. I just I feel like people have lost the ability to imagine a different world. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it though is that there's such convenience in these places, and as you mentioned earlier, the terms and service of anything is super overwhelming, and I think you could sort of apply that just generally like overwhelmed concept to like yep. most parts of the experience of the internet these days. Whether that's like trying to figure out whether a video is a real video or whether a 
the news article is actually real or i mean it goes on and on we could go into every mm -hmm. single topic of society and talk about how there's too much and it's overwhelming and it's hard to discern you know fact from fiction that's some of what the simplicity of like oh well gmail is safe yeah, well, I think that's what started off. Now people are starting to see. What so. did is it, did EFF or did you have an opinion on? The, he had this Mark Zuckerberg's speech. I think a week ago. Oh, the speech at Georgetown. Well, I mean, given that I was alive when Facebook started, I had a really hard time with the new origin story that he came up with. Right. Uh, since I remember when it was hot or not. Anyway, but that's I mean that's a small thing. I I do think that it was an effort by Mark to put a marker down on the side of free speech. But I think it was pretty clumsily done, and and there's so much more that they could do to demonstrate that than to just show up at Georgetown and give a speech. So, you know, I guess my 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 thought is, you know, I I do appreciate that Facebook believes that free speech is still a value. I I share that belief. Right. Um. I'd like to see them take some, you know, continue to take steps to stand up for it. And you know, again, I you know, words can be nice, but but they seem to be words that were aimed at trying to make conservative lawmakers happy, right? which I think, I don't know, I just think it landed kind of flat with everybody who wasn't that. I'm not sure how it landed with that community either, but I thought it was kind of ham-fisted and poorly done. But, you know, I'd certainly rather have Facebook come down on the side of free speech than come down on the, on, on the other side, which is, oh, well, you know, you don't get to say anything unless Mark thinks you should. I mean, that would be worse. Right. I mean, it is good to see that they don't want to be the arbiters of it. At yeah, least well, that they say that they don't want to be they, the arbiters of They it. say that they don't, but they, but yet then they, they crow about how much speech they're taking down and how right. fast they're taking it down. I mean, I do think that, you know, and they're getting pressure like that. I mean, the, the you know, the European pressure especially is very strong, like that Facebook should be, should be a censor and should be a better censor. I mean, I think, you know, holding the line against that pressure is, is, is pretty important, actually, because I don't think the world is, again, I, I think that the answer to a dictator isn't to try to make them a better dictator. It's actually to to reintroduce competition and distribution uh, into this space and make it so that Facebook just doesn't matter as much right. anymore by giving people real other options and the ability to leave. You know, and maybe that wouldn't work, but maybe we could try it, right? Like, you know, people got into Facebook because Google let you take your contacts out of Gmail and move them into Facebook. Um, but Facebook doesn't let you take them out and go anywhere else. Right. Um, you know, it's the Roach Motel, right? Like, I think people deserve, you know, I, I, I joke sometimes. I don't know that Facebook has customers anymore as much as they have hostages. So let's try that. Like, let's try an interoperable, adversarial set of ways that you can decide, let people offer you better tools, and let's give you an opportunity to vote with your feet. If that doesn't work, there's other things to do. And again, I think that might take some law. It might take fixing some laws, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, some of the end user license agreements that limit people's ability to make interoperable products are, are obstacles in the way now that we can get rid of. It may take some positive things to require the companies to be interoperable. But let's try it. Let's see if we can release an actual free market you know, a, a more competition-based set of solutions rather than just resigning ourselves to the reign of Mark Zuckerberg and pounding the table about it. In this way, you know, maybe we do need to think about whether Facebook should be broken up or not. I think that's a long, hard road. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but I, I kind of want to do a bunch of different things to try to reintroduce competition uh, rather than putting all our eggs in one basket. Cindy Cohn, that's a lot to think about, and I, we appreciate <laughs> you 
bringing it to us to think about and for all your work at the EFF and for all the work EFF has done over the years. Thanks so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thank you. Thank you to Cindy for stopping by the Webby Podcast. And to learn more about the EFF's fight to decentralize social platforms, head to EFF.org. If you like the Webby Podcast and want to support it, take a couple of seconds and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, you can reach me on social at DMDLikes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a very thoughtful, well-planned out meeting agenda. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>